And uh, this passage has been on my heart for uh, a, a little while. And really, when Rich, Rich, this was Rich's idea to study the fruit of the Spirit over the summer. And he kind of lobbed it out there. And I was looking at it, thinking about it, meditating on it. And I thought, wow, I personally really want to study this text. Um, so I've obviously looked at it, taught it in different contexts, but never done an in-depth study of, of this whole paragraph of the fruit of the Spirit. And so I began thinking about that, meditating on it, doing some reading, getting in the text, and, um, and now I, I really want to study it. So I'm gonna, nobody's going to get to teach this summer. I'm going to teach the whole thing. I'm just kidding. Um, no, I, as much as I would like to do that, um, we are sharing the load this summer, and that is intentional uh, because I want you to hear from a number of the guys that uh, the Lord is raising up um, in our midst, and they have aspirations for either some form of ministry, pastoral ministry, missions, and um, we just we want to give them a chance to teach and kind of test their gifts and see uh, where they're at and how they're doing. And so the summers is how it was, was when Rich and I do that. So um, we're, we're still settling that schedule out to see who's teaching when, but um, the guys are going to each take a fruit of the Spirit and spend one week on that fruit. So what I'm going to do today and next week is set this text up, um, and then I'm going to come back at the end and kind of tie it all up together, and um, there's another part of this passage that I've also really wanted to study for quite some time about bearing one another's burdens um, at the end of Galatians 6, so I'm excited to, to teach that. So this morning, what I want to do, you can, if you're not already there, go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, Galatians 6. And we are going to jump in to our study of the fruit of the Spirit. Did I say six? Galatians 5. Galatians 5. All right. I've got to get oriented to where, uh, where the text is. Um, and what I want to do this morning is, I just want to kind of jump right into it. Actually, I've got to find my clicker. And I want to, I want to set up this passage for us this morning so that as we, as we study it, we kind of have a, a good orientation to, to this topic, to this issue that Paul's writing about. And I want to ask and answer two key questions this morning, kind of by way of introduction. Um, we're going to ask and answer two key questions to set us up for an in-depth study of this passage in the weeks to come. And I'm just going to jump right in. So the first question is, what exactly is the fruit of the Spirit? All right, what exactly is the fruit of the Spirit? How would you answer that question? Yeah. Okay, yeah. A natural response to the Spirit um, being involved in our lives at some level. All right. Well, why don't we, just, why don't we jump in? Let's read it, and then, uh, and then we'll take a look. We'll start in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So right here in the middle of this paragraph, you have this phrase... In verse 18, I'm sorry, uh, on down, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, and then he goes on to define it, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So here you have some manifestations of the Spirit in in our lives, and it's described as fruit. So I thought the best way to kind of get this study going is for us to think carefully about what the fruit of the Spirit actually is. All right, and kind of put some, if Paul were here, I think maybe this is how he would answer this question if he had some time to, you know, to develop it out um, in our context. All right, so here's how I would describe it. The fruit of the Spirit, you ready? Is Christ's character produced by the Spirit progressively through faith. All right, I'll say it again. The fruit of the Spirit, we're going to unpack this. The fruit of the Spirit... Is Christ's own character produced in your life by the Spirit's power? It happens progressively, not all at once. And it's through faith. Christ's character produced by the Spirit progressively through faith. That's kind of the short, shorthand way of the way, at least at this point, I would define the fruit of the Spirit. So let's... Let's just unpack this as kind of we get as we get going, and then we're gonna we're gonna look at you know kind of show show this from the letter itself, and then I want to step back and ask a second question: and why why what is it? And then why is Paul writing it here? So why does why does this fruit of the spirit, this passage all about fruit and what the spirit's doing in our life? Why does it why does Paul write it to the Galatians in this in this chapter in this letter to the to the Galatian churches? And how is that, that significant for us today? All right, so let's unpack this first question. What exactly is the fruit of the Spirit? It's Christ's character. It's Christ's character. So I think when we get into this, you know, our first instinct when we read verse 22 is to think in terms of a list of virtues, right? So there's love, there's joy, there's peace, there's patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And we kind of look at these sort of in the abstract, like list of virtues, great, that we should all be pursuing, but the reality is, this is fruit of the Spirit, and it's, it's really a, a resemblance of Jesus. It's the Spirit, who, the Spirit of Christ who's been given to us to produce His fruit in our lives, and the fruit is resembling Jesus. It's actually Christ's own character. So let's take a look at this and kind of, kind of defend this point by point, all right? The fruit is 
is singular here. You'll notice that. The fruit of the Spirit. And so that's, that, could, that could lead to a couple of, of different interpretations here. It could mean that love is the all-encompassing fruit. So the fruit of the Spirit is love. Like, so he leads with love, and that would definitely be um, true in Paul's mind, that love is sort of the, the preeminent virtue. It resembles Christ, kind of his, his heading. And there's even evidence for that in the letter here. But I think what's better is to understand this fruit, the singular fruit, as referring to the totality of Christ's righteous character. Make sense? It's the, the totality of his, of his righteous character and who he is. With love being preeminent, for sure. So if you're thinking, okay, where, I see the fruit of the Spirit, but where are you getting this idea about Christ and his character? Well, if you flip, over, flip back to verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 19. You'll see that Paul is very eager to see something happen in the life of the Galatians. And he compares himself to, you know, a spiritual parent. And in verse 19, he says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now to change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. We'll talk about that in just a minute, why he's perplexed. But all I want you to see here is this phrase, Christ is formed in you. Paul's eager desire for the Galatians was to have Christ formed in them. So what does that mean? It means he wants the Galatians to come to resemble Jesus. To look like Jesus, act like Jesus, think like Jesus, have the same character as Jesus. That's, that's what he means with Christ is formed in you. And that was what he was anguishing over, like a spiritual parent wanting to see that formation take place. And I'm arguing that, that that's just another way of describing it here with the, with the, as describing it as the fruit of the Spirit. It's the formation of Christ in the life of a believer. It's Christ's own character. And it's important that we start here and just understanding that, that it's, it really is um, God's goal for us that we come to resemble Jesus because to be fruitful like Christ is the absolute best thing that we could participate in. It's the best thing for us. If we just kind of take a step back and you were to trace this metaphor of fruitfulness through the Bible, obviously it starts in Genesis 1 and it, it goes all the way through, you know, passages like Psalm 1, you know, whoever's delighting in the law of the Lord is going to be like a fruitful tree. So this theme is, is a rich biblical theme and it's, it's the most significant thing that we could pursue with our lives. And I think we're so often deceived for lesser ends in our lives, right? So if you look here, we'll look at this more next week, but he contrasts this fruit of the Spirit with these sort of lesser ends or these destructive ends of the works of the flesh. And notice on the, out, on the outset that there's, he talks about sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, um, stuff that we're counseling people about all the time. These are works of the flesh, Unrestrained sexual fulfillment is not the good life, like our culture would say, right? We, you know, so, many, so many people today are teaching that this, you know, this unrestrained, passionate pursuit of you know, whatever your inner desires are, that's the good life. And if you can just do that, then you're going to be fulfilled. 
Well, that can't be further from what Paul thinks here. The good life, according to Paul, the life that's productive, spiritually vibrant, is a life full of the Spirit's fruit. So again, he he hits some of these sort of sexual uh, perversions up front, but then there's even more normal or acceptable perversions of of the works of the flesh listed here, like envy, jealousy, rivalry, anger, Things like that. So we see someone else, we want what they have, we envy their gifts, we envy their, their abilities, we want their boyfriend or girlfriend. You know, just, you, you kind of think in those terms, and that's, that's fleshy, Paul would say. You think, man, if I can just get that, and if I can have what they have, I'm going to have a successful, fruitful, productive life. But that is not the case. Okay, that's not the case. That's envy, jealousy. These are selfish ambitions. These things come from the flesh, they, and, they're, and they're destructive. And again, we'll unpack that. I'm just trying to help you put this together right now about Christ's character. Because a successful, truly productive, and a well-lived life, a life without regrets, a life that's eternally rewarding, that's temporally satisfying, is a life that's filled with this kind of sweetly ripened fruit that he's going to go on to, to describe in this passage. Things like love, a life of love toward each other and toward the unbelieving world is extremely, extremely fruitful, powerful, productive, eternally. Joy, right, that's untethered to our circumstances, that transcends whatever's happening to us. Happiness in life and death. Peace, peace in our relationships as we're willing to uh, forgive and love and stay unified with each other. That is, I mean, you just look at the carnage that comes in families and friendships from a lack of peace, lack of relational harmony. We could go on, you know, patience, kindness, goodness. These things are, are a truly productive, well-lived life, a life without regrets, and a life that will be rewarded eternally. And I think when we get back to this idea of it being Christ's character, when we realize that this list is not merely an abstract virtue list, but it reflects a person. It reflects the person, the truest human. It reflects the Lord Jesus. It puts this fruit in a relational context, like an embodied context. We're mimicking Jesus as we grow in the fruit of the Spirit. That means we're learning from Him, And we see in him how these qualities are manifested and how they play out right here in the midst of this kind of crooked world full of the flesh. Right here in the middle of this broken world, this fruit springs forward and is born through through the power of the Spirit. But how does this fruit grow? How does it where does it come from? How is it produced? Well, if you notice, it is the fruit of the Spirit meaning it's produced by the Spirit's presence and power in our lives. Paul doesn't first look to your efforts. He's rooting it in the Spirit's presence and power in our lives. He says it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit fruit, fruit, produced, there we go, the fruit produced by the Spirit. Now, if you know, we were to be really knowledgeable of the Old Testament, we would know, and maybe even have a good familiarity with Galatians, we would know that the Spirit's 
presence in our lives is the fulfillment of promises that God has made to his people, um, new covenant promises in particular, that he would give his spirit to his people and cause them to obey him. So, these new covenant promises like Jeremiah 31 and others, you know, the people of God had, had never been consistently faithful. The remnant had been, guys like David, Abraham, the forefathers, a small group had been faithful to the, to the covenant. But the majority of the people of God had never been consistently faithful. And the reason is because they did not have God's spirit. God's enabling spirit within them. And so, while they were in exile, Israel's prophets looked to a new day, and it didn't start with them, by the way, it started back in Deuteronomy and other places where they were looking to this day, where God would act in a new and final and kind of climactic way in a new covenant with a new David and restore his people and make them obedient from their hearts. Nothing external trying to press them in to obey, but it would, it would spring up from within them, and it wouldn't come from them, it would come from His Spirit. So I've written down Ezekiel 36, 27 there as a great, a great text. You can, you can go look that up. I'll read it to you. He says, And I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules. So again, New Covenant promise, where the Lord promises to put His Spirit within His people, and cause them, cause us, to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now there may be, I haven't studied this out in depth, but there's likely some interesting parallels here with verse 16 in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit. Right? Because he says in Ezekiel 26, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So then that raises another question for us then. Well, how do I know if I have the Spirit? Because that's a, that's a pretty big deal, right? How do I know if I have the Spirit? Well, again, if we're back in Galatians, Paul would answer that. He would ask you, well, have you heard the gospel and believed it by faith? Have you heard the gospel and believed it by faith? Meaning, if you believe the gospel, you have the promised Spirit. Look over in chapter 3. He says, O foolish Galatians, verse 1, Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? We'll talk about this in just a second. But the hearing with faith is the answer. You receive the Spirit by hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the gospel. The gospel that Paul preached. When he came to them, they heard the gospel, and they believed it. It was with faith. They received Christ. They said, we, we can't obey the law. We've only ever not obeyed the law. We've only ever incurred God's judgment because of our sin. And yet, this, this Paul is preaching a Christ who's obeyed for us. He's preaching a Christ who died for us and is offering us his righteousness freely apart from the law, like we've been hearing on Sunday morning. And so when you believe that, Paul says, when you 
received Christ to yourself, you became His disciple, you heard with faith, that's your reception of the Spirit. You have received the Spirit. So that's incredibly encouraging, right? Because we're all in process, and we're all kind of tempted to think, okay, well, do I have the Spirit? A lot's riding on having the Spirit's presence in my life. How do I know if I have the Spirit's presence? Well, it all comes back to believing the gospel. And if you're unsure, it still goes back to believing the gospel. How you obtain the Spirit is by resting in the finished work of Christ on your behalf and walking in that reality. And if you keep going backwards, let's go backwards over to chapter 2. This idea of, of the reception of the Spirit, where Christ's own Spirit has come to sort of abide and dwell in you, there's another, there's another metaphor that's used here, another description of this, which we would say, we've been united with Christ. And now, Paul says, Christ Himself lives within us. Lives within us. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So he has been unified with Jesus, unified in his death, crucified with Christ, and now unified with his life. It's now Christ who's living within Paul, he says. Christ is living within him. And how is Christ living within him? He's, He's dwelling within Paul through His Spirit, who will produce His fruit. Now, I don't want you to miss this, okay? All of this guarantees that for the true believer, we will come to resemble Jesus. It guarantees... That for you and I, if we really have, have trusted Jesus, as weak as our faith might seem at points, but if we've said, it's not, I, I cannot obey on my own, I need Christ, I need His righteousness, and I want to follow Him. That didn't come from you, number one, and that guarantees that for you, as a true believer, you will come to resemble Christ. And this is the Spirit's number one priority for our lives to produce His fruit in us. And according to Ezekiel, that's why God gave Him to us. To have the life of Christ bursting forth from us. And this gives us tremendous hope in our discouragement. It gives us tremendous hope even in our our sort of fickleness and obedience, in our besetting sin patterns. When we see the desires of the flesh welling up within us, and it seems that's our... That's where, that's, where we, that's where we go. We'll talk about that next week. But this promise that Christ is now living in us, we've been crucified with Christ in our union with Him, this gives us tremendous encouragement. Because it's ultimately the Spirit's responsibility, ultimately, to change us. And it's a guarantee that He will. We won't be perfect in this life. We still await what Paul will say in Galatians, this hope of righteousness, that we eagerly await this hope of righteousness that's coming to us in the future, the return of Christ, our full glory. But, so, but this, this promise that it's from the Spirit, by the Spirit, that it's His fruit, gives us hope in our discouragement. 
And it forbids us to give up on any besetting sin pattern. No matter how entrenched and enslaved we feel to it. Why is that? Well, because it's the Spirit's work, right? It's His power in our lives, even if we feel completely overwhelmed. So if you think, I'll never overcome this sin. I'll never make any progress. You can tell yourself right now that that's a lie based on this passage. The fruit is ultimately the Spirit's fruit. And He will see to it that, when, that we, we will come to have it. We'll come to have it little by little now and fully when Christ returns. So if you're tempted with that lie, say something to yourself, preach to yourself this. Okay, wow, it feels like I'm making no progress, and even though, and it feels like I'm going backwards some days, but Holy Spirit, this fruit is ultimately yours to produce, and it's what you promise, and I trust you. It starts, the battle starts by taking your eyes off yourself, putting them back on the triune God and the Spirit who's dwelling within you, and has promised to produce his fruit. But you might be thinking, well, if the Spirit is the one who produces fruit, and if I'm not living anymore, and it's just Jesus living in me, like Paul says here, am I completely passive in this process? Some would say yes. Some would teach yes. And it's kind of popularized with statements like, let go and let God. You know, just simply surrender. It's a little old now, but just stop driving and let Jesus take the wheel. Or probably more popularly in our circles, don't strive, just rest. But Paul would tell us something a little bit different in this letter. Even though the Spirit is the great producer of this fruit, it's ripened in our lives as we progressively learn to trust Jesus in every moment of life. So, it's Christ's character, it's produced by His Spirit, and it's produced progressively through faith. If you're still in chapter 2, verse 20, kind of look back there. I want you to notice the seeming paradox in that, in that verse. Paul says, he's been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer him that lives, but Christ who lives in him. And if he were to stop there, then I'd say that sounds pretty passive, right? Crucified with Jesus, I'm not living anymore, Jesus is living in me, right? Sounds passive. But he doesn't stop there, he continues. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So in one sense, it's Christ living in Paul. He's been crucified. It's Christ who now lives. But there's another sense in which Paul's actually living. Day by day. He's making decisions. He's choosing what he's going to believe. And he says, this life that's in the flesh, meaning it's in this existence right now, before we're glorified, this life in the flesh, he says, is lived by faith. It's a life of trusting and learning to trust the Son of God. 
And this Son of God is the Son who loves Him, loves us, and He gave Himself for us. So, He's crucified with Christ, which means the resurrected Christ is the source of His life and is empowering Paul to actually live life still in this body, but He's not passive. His role is to continue to trust Jesus day by day, moment by moment. He asks Himself, what does Christ want? Let me do that in this moment. What does Christ promise? I'm going to depend on that over what I feel right now. What has Jesus commanded? I'm going to believe that it's best for me to obey. That's a life of faith in the Son of God. And what we're going to see is it's a life of war. Before you were dead, before Christ came to you and you were dead in sin, there was no war. There was total passivity to to the flesh. You may have not realized the full extent of it, but that was your only option. Now that the Spirit has flooded your life, life is now a war, and it's a war to believe Jesus. It's a life of faith in the Son of God. And that's what the living Christ within Paul, within you and I, is empowering us to do. The living Christ, via His Spirit, is empowering us to believe Him more and more each day. We have a new capacity, a new power to trust God. And before we didn't. But you might be thinking, okay, great, Clay. Well, I see that, that we're not passive, at least in some sense here in this passage in chapter 2. But what about the fruit of the Spirit passage? Well, let's go over there too. There's evidence in that passage that the fruit, while produced by the Spirit, also involves our intense effort. All right, for starters, notice that we are commanded in this passage to walk by the Spirit. Look in verse 16. But I say, this is imperative, this is a command. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We're going to talk more about this next week and really kind of unpack this statement. But here, I just want you to see that Paul's commanding us to live our lives by the Spirit or in the Spirit or by His power. So there's a personal responsibility here for us to follow. He wouldn't give us a command if he didn't expect us to do something about it. And at the end of the same paragraph, after he's described the kind of Christ-like virtue the Spirit is going to produce in our lives, we're also exhorted there again to keep in step with the Spirit. Look in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, that's referring to our conversion, If we live by the Spirit, and we do, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Again, another exhortation to show that we must exert effort in actually following the Spirit and yielding ourselves to Him. In verse 18, he talks about being led by the Spirit. So this idea of of keeping in step with the Spirit is like the metaphor is, I got His hand, I'm grabbing His hand, And now I'm kind of keeping up with him. So he's not dragging me along. You know, like I'm keeping in step with the Spirit. He's leading me. This is not talking about like decisions. The Spirit's going to lead me into whether or not I should buy that car or not. This is talking about being led morally by the Spirit. Like he's going to lead us into his fruit as we keep in step with it. So there's a responsibility there on our side. And finally, think through this. Even though... The Spirit is the one who is described in this passage as the He is the one who produces love, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Fair? 
He produces the love. And yet, in this same letter, we are commanded to love. We're commanded to love. Look back in chapter 5, verse 13. There he tells us not to use our new freedom in Christ as justification for sin, but, he says, to serve one another in love. Another command. Serve one another in love. Again, just showing that there is a part we play in the, I call it, the ripening of this fruit. And this realization that Christ intends us to produce fruit as we come to trust Him more and more, this is incredibly hopeful, and it's very simplifying for the Christian life. If you and I can learn to just believe what Jesus says, believe Him and His words above everything else, above what we feel, above what a psychologist might tell us, above what we want or what seems right to us, if we can simply trust Him, we will change. And this realization also shows us where the work is involved as well. We have to know His words and learn to live by them in every area of life. We've got to see where we're deceived. All right? And you're like, where is that? Well, cue the works of the flesh, right? That's the, those are the signs of deception. So we've got to learn where we're deceived. We need to get to work in renewing our minds to trust Jesus and yield to His will in that situation above what we want. Above what we might think ourselves. And as we strive, we can do it in joy. We can do it in hope. Why? Because we strive with confidence. We strive knowing that the Spirit is under us, over us, within us. He was given to us freely. Not by our obedience. He's our fail-safe. He is ensuring that we will grow as we step out in faith, no matter how difficult it seems. So let's just review this first question. What's the fruit of the Spirit? It's Christ's character produced or formed in us by the Spirit, by His power, by His enablement. And it happens progressively through faith. It's a life of war to trust Jesus, believe Him. It happens over time as we come to trust and yield to Jesus in every situation of our lives. So this is a gem of a passage about how we change. And we're going to look at the whole paragraph in depth next week. But in this short time that we have left, I want to take one more step backward and help us see exactly why Paul wrote this passage to the Galatians in the first place. So we need to ask our second question, and that will help us set up this, these verses for the weeks to come. And it's, why is Paul writing this passage? Why is Paul writing this passage? Why does he write about it here? Chapter 5. Well, as sweet and as beautiful as this text is, the background of this letter is very intense. Let me kind of set this up for you. These churches of Galatia were very dear to Paul's heart because he had recently planted them. He'd recently seen these churches come to faith in Christ. And they came to faith through his preaching. You can write down Acts 13 and 14. That tells us what happened. They were some of his first churches that he planted during his initial missionary journey. And if you remember, the Antioch church sent out Paul and Barnabas. They traveled through the Galatia region. They ended up preaching the gospel at four major Galatian cities. 
Antioch of Poseidon, then at Iconium, and then finally at Lystra and Derbe. And while he was at Lystra, the Jews convinced the crowds, they had kind of were chasing him from city to city, the unbelieving Jews, and they convinced the crowds to, to stone Paul. And they pummeled him. And they pummeled him to the point that they thought they had killed him. And so they kind of dragged his lifeless body through the street, and they put him outside the city and left him for dead. Chapter 14, verse 19 of Acts. But when the disciples gathered around him, Paul kind of gets up, and then he goes back into Derby, and then he goes to, uh, I'm sorry, he goes back into Iconium, and then he goes to Derby the next day, continuing to preach. And then, <laughs> prior stoned Paul, um, makes the circuit trip back to all the Galatian churches he had planted as a living example of what it means to enter the kingdom of God through suffering. He could have gone straight back to, to home base, to Antioch. It would actually been shorter for him to do that. But he stops in Derby, turns around, and makes the reverse course all the way back to those churches he'd planted. And after a stoning like that, he no doubt incurred some significant injuries. And it's very likely that these new converts were instrumental in caring for his bodily injuries. He kind of makes mention of something around that in chapter 4. Look in chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment. That word ailment could mean a suffering, something that's happened. But in any case, it's... Obviously, if you were stoned, you have lots of bodily ailments, okay? You know that it's because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, having been, you know, publicly humiliated like that. You didn't, you didn't scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Some people even think that, that he was partially blind as a, as a result of the stoning, and they would have given him their very eyes if they could have. And again, just showing you how dear these people were to Paul and they to him. But very soon after he had left them and returned back to Antioch, after this stoning, he got word that these fledgling churches were in very real danger. Jewish Christians, at least professing Christians, had come to these new churches and began to both undermine Paul and add to his gospel that he preached. You see, these Jewish believers thought, and they taught, that to truly be part of the people of God, you needed to, yes, believe in Jesus, but you needed to become ethnically Jewish. Which meant, among other things, you needed to become circumcised and put yourself under the law of Moses. Circumcision was the sign of the Old Covenant... And for these Jewish Christians, it was necessary, in addition to faith in Jesus, it was necessary for someone, if they want to truly be part of the people of God, to receive these things. They affirmed the gospel, quote-unquote. They just added to it, saying that Jesus plus your becoming an Israelite is what gets you into God's people. Righteousness, in other words, is not simply and only because of Jesus. You complete it with your submission to these rules and regulations, the Torah, God's law. 
And to make matters worse, it's very likely that the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, that hadn't happened yet. So Acts 13 and 14, Paul goes to these churches, plants them, goes back to Antioch, home base. Acts 15 is this thing called the Jerusalem Council. And if you're unfamiliar with it, the Jerusalem Council is where the apostles once and for all dealt with this very issue about whether or not Gentiles needed to submit to the law of Moses. And the decision was, no, they do not. Peter reminded these Jewish believers that God gave them the Spirit. He gave the Spirit to the Gentiles just like He gave the Spirit to the Jews. And He did it apart from them being circumcised. He cleansed them and made no distinction between Jew or Gentile, Peter says. And if they were to tell these Gentile believers to submit to the Mosaic law now, they would be putting God to the test, says Peter, putting a yoke around these disciples' necks. He says that neither the Jewish forefathers nor even the apostles had been able to bear. The reality is no one's kept the law, guys. It's only led to our condemnation. Why are we now going back and putting this yoke on these Gentile believers. Everyone at that council then listened to Paul and Barnabas confirm what, what Peter said by their own experience with the Gentiles. Then James spoke up and he sealed the deal. They wrote it down in an official document. They disseminated the decision to all the Gentile churches. And as great as that is, I'm almost certain it hadn't happened yet in this letter when Paul was writing it because he doesn't make mention of it. And beyond that, okay, these false teachers were claiming that the Jerusalem apostles agreed with them and not Paul. They also had likely challenged Paul's apostleship. They made some significant accusations about Paul. They they accused him of learning the gospel from other men, like the original apostles, not from Christ. And not only did he get it secondhand, i.e. not from Jesus, but he also distorted it because he was trying to please the Galatians, they said. He said something like this, let's face it. Galatians, all right? Circumcision's awkward. It's hard to submit to. So Paul's just watering down the message to try to make it more acceptable to you Gentiles. Look right here at Genesis 17. It's the very sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. And it's been the sign for years. If you want to be saved, if you want to be holy, you want to be clean, you need to receive it and learn the Torah's laws and live obediently to the Torah, just like God gave to Moses. It was a compelling message to these new converts. And some had begun to believe that message. And so the stakes were really high, and Paul knew it. Normally, Paul opens his letters with a glowing thanksgiving to God for for the saints, an affirmation of their godliness. But not this time. The very soul of the church was at stake, and they were turning to a false gospel, another gospel that would damn them if they believed it. Which is why he opens this letter so intensely in verse 6 of chapter 1. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul's astonished. He's going to go on to defend the credibility of his apostleship and to ground his gospel in the Old Testament as its only fulfillment. Trying to find the righteousness in the law as a fool's errand and a false hope, he says. The law never perfected anyone. It was only meant to lead them to Christ and to see their need for the Spirit of God who would write the law on their hearts, as promised. And so, this passage on the fruit of the Spirit, it's all background of where I'm getting to, real quick. This passage is a corrective 
against legalism. And I, you, can, you can read that corrective in the opening of, of chapter 5. Paul's teaching here on the fruit of the Spirit is written against the black backdrop of, of what we might call legalism. It's a corrective to a flesh-centered law approach to righteousness. Paul's arguing that righteousness is a free gift from God through Christ and that its manifestation in the life of a believer can only come as a supernatural fruit produced by the promised Holy Spirit. So it was helpful for the Galatians, but this is still helpful for us today. We're often tempted to believe that God accepts us, that He makes us right with Himself because of something we've done, some kind of righteousness that we've earned, that makes us a little more likable to God than the next guy or gal. But nothing could be further from the truth. We have to resist the the legalistic bent in our hearts to find merit in ourselves before God. We have nothing. We have only sin, and we have only enslavement to the flesh to offer God. And if we try to get better without God, without His Spirit, if we try to change apart from Christ, we are doomed as well. The flesh is too strong, and we are too dead. Our only hope is Jesus, His life-giving Spirit working in us and through us. And so this passage, as we study it, is going to protect us from the legalistic self-help strategies... And it's going to cast us in a full dependence upon the Spirit to bear His fruit in our lives. And in this way, and only this way, will we truly fulfill the heart of the law. The heart of the law, the heart of the Old Testament law, which was love. And so, not only does this passage correct this legalistic spirit, but it also acts as a corrective against what I'm calling licentiousness. It's a big word. It's just fleshly indulgence. Paul, in his wisdom, not only, not only did he address the threat of legalism, but he also anticipated a reactionary threat, which is the threat of fleshly indulgence. So if these believers are saying, okay, we're not under the law, then we're just going to, we're free from the law. So we have the spirit, and I guess we're free to live however we want. But that is obviously not the case. We are not free from sin to stay dominated by sin. And that's Paul's, Paul's whole argument in verse, beginning in verse 13. Paul wants us to see that we are free to serve, and that's the life of the new covenant believer. We're not free to sin. In fact, he's going to show us next, next time that the desires of the Spirit are completely antithetical to the desires of the flesh, and that we've got to learn to keep in step with this Spirit, yielding to His will by faith. And if we do, Paul promises that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's a staggering, hope-filled promise. And it's so important that we're going to spend all of next week looking at it. All right, before we jump into the fruit of the Spirit. So, we're out of time. Hopefully your appetite is ready for an in-depth study after today. Um, I know that I am. I'm excited. Uh, So let's pray.